Thank you, Ken. That's great. We get this uh, habit of that going every Sunday. That'll be all right. And then we get Frank up here, and then, uh, well, we'll just have something going here big. Yeah, that's what I was standing up here, or sitting here thinking. We just need them singing together. That'd be great. Hair matches and everything. <laughs> you want to introduce your guest? Vicki, all right, glad to have you here, Vicki. Good friend. And this reconnected, I guess Ken said, after about 30-something, 30 years of being unconnected, got reattached, so that's, that's good. That is good. We're glad to have you here. Glad you're here this morning. Glad to see Jeff made it in here, too. Okay, now we got something going on back there. Yeah, Owen's here. <laughs> he, he probably would sing. I get, did I tell you all about that? The other Sunday after church, he came up here. I, I think that might have been when you were gone. He came up here. Where he got this, I have no idea because we're all, everybody's back there. He came up here, got this microphone, and he's just walking around up here going, da, 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 and just pacing back and forth. I said, Owen, oh, you preaching or are you singing? He's not singing, Pop. And we're all back there. But he said, look, Miss Shirley. <laughs> she want, he wanted Miss Shirley to see him up here singing. So, and then we were at this, um, I don't know what you'd call it for sure, but it was a like Saturday morning, it was kind of a restaurant kind of a thing, but they had this place up there for music, you know, and he went, he headed right on up there to grab that microphone. I had to stop him. <laughs> he was he was ready to roll. Yeah, that's right. He was singing. He said, Jesus loves me. This is Owen. <laughs> so we had a we had a good time with Owen there. He's he's carrying on. All right, we are in Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at the Beatitudes. And, um, boy, I already, I already would like to go back and start all over again. <laughs> you learn so much and uh, studying this. And, and, and I may go back and start all over when I get done. I'm going to go back and uh, refresh on a few things here and point a few things out. So, anyway, and here comes Ava. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, you're recruiting. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, we got that settled. So we're looking, and, and of course, just by small way of review, we've already noted that the picture here is John the Baptist coming on the scene. John the Baptist is preaching, repent. For the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. And as soon as Jesus makes his public ministry announcement, he preaches the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. We find that this was a follow-up to the promise of the kingdom in the Old Testament with a larger view for those who were 
seeking after God and the fulfillment of his promises. And the Lord sets his disciples down and begins to teach them and teach them about this kingdom of which it appears he assumed a basic knowledge because he's simply now announcing to them at the very and fairly early on in his ministry and most commentators would say even though this appears early on in Matthew's gospel the actual teaching took place at a later point in time chronologically in his in in Jesus's ministry but of course Matthew arranged these things in order of their importance and it's more uh, not so much chronological as it is set out in logical order and consequently then what we find here is at the very beginning he's presenting the qualifications for those who would enter this kingdom of which he is speaking and of course they all the first several there have to do with passive inward things qualities of life that deal with character poverty of spirit and meekness and mournful and so on and the one we're looking at today the one who's hungering and thirsting after righteousness and then he passes on to the active things and he he's speaking here actively about those that are pure in heart the peacemakers uh the persecuted ones and so on and you know this is not the only place in the scriptures by any means that we find qualifications mentioned or a list of those things which God finds that he will approve of in a person's life. Those kinds of qualities or things which he more or less zeroes in on and says, um, this, this is what I'm looking for in a person's life that's going to be a participant in my kingdom. And we're going to look at a couple of those this morning just as a way of, of reminder, some that we've looked at before. Well, matter of fact, let's just go turn to second. Well, let's read the verse first. We ought to look at that. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6 says, Blessed or happy or, as we noted, to be blessed is to have God's approval of you. I mean, if you don't have God's approval, how could you be happy? How could you feel blessed? How could you be a recipient of anything that God is offering if you don't have his approval? And so when you think of it in that manner, we're thinking of happiness because you have God's approval of your life. I'm tempted to... Well, okay. I guess you looked at the front page of the paper today and you saw this big article there over um, this individual's life, uh, a minister here in town on staff at a church and whose son turned out to be gay. He was a homosexual and he ended up dying of AIDS. 
And the controversy, of course, was over how they were treating him in church and so on and his acceptance and all this. And the change in the dad minister's life in a more open, accepting um, view of Scripture regarding homosexuality. And, of course, an obvious slant towards, towards his son. But the real point that I was leaning to make here was, you know, this, the son said as he was dying, holding the hand of his partner, by the way. So, I mean, he was dying, rejecting, and, you know, refusing God's direction right up to the point of his death. But he said, Dad, but I know I've been born again. And I was talking with Ken about that earlier this morning. You know, the fact that that's where we are today in Christianity is that people want to believe and accept Christ as their Savior and then think that everything else is okay after that. And it just doesn't really matter. I have God's acceptance, his approval. And yet we find here a whole different spirit and attitude of those things that God requires for his acceptance. A meek, poor spirit and a mournful heart, a pure heart, and such other things that we'll be looking at. Here in verse 6, he says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, in view of that, and in view of what Christ is setting forth here as requirements for entrance into his kingdom, I want us to turn back to 2 Peter. And if you'd also put your finger in 1 Peter, we'll take a look at a couple of verses there. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Chapter, yeah. <clears throat> Beginning in, in verse 3, 2 Peter chapter 1, and look at verse 3. It says there, according as, or some translate that, seeing that, seeing that his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside these, giving all diligence, add to your faith. And then... Peter begins to provide a list of things that we need to grow in, in our faith. What I want us to look at here is that back in verse 3, it says there, He, through the knowledge of him, hath called us to glory and to virtue. I want us to turn back to 1 Peter in chapter 2 and verse 9. 
where he says there, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He has called us. Being a Christian is a peculiar calling, and it's a calling to something far higher than the average church realizes. If you'll look over just to to the right a couple more pages to chapter 5 and verse 10, you'll notice there he says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory, by or in Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Now, we have noted in the past that word eternal, which is the English word for eon or an age, speaking here of the millennial glory. This is what Peter has called us to, the millennial glory or that age-abiding, age-lasting glory. The very age promised by God in the Old Testament to the Old Testament saints and prophets and that which they themselves proclaimed. And now Jesus comes on the scene teaching about and preaching about and now Peter here reminding us what he has called us to. So back here then in 2 Peter chapter 1, we find this list of things that Peter says we are to add to our faith. If we have believed that Jesus is the promised Messiah, he is the one of whom God spoke, and our faith is in him, then our faith is not to remain static. It is rather to be a living, lively faith, growing faith. And this faith he mentions here, beginning in verse 5, we are to add to it such qualities as these, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. Then he says, for if, in verse 8, if these things be in you and abound, so we are to be in possession of these qualities and abounding in them, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the point there is, is that a person can receive Christ as their Savior and live out their life, and at the end of the life, their faith can still be barren, and it could be unfruitful. And such are many today. Hence the example I was giving you on the front page of the paper today. So I know you'll go home and read that article, right? A barren, unfruitful faith. James talks about the same thing. He gives us the example of a body. He says, for as a body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So you can have a barren faith. 
You can have an unfruitful faith. You can have a dead faith. Now, the point is, is you still have faith. The question is, is does it count for anything before God? And that's what Jesus is getting to in his sermon, in his teaching of the disciples. That's what Peter is referring to here because he goes on to say, at the, look down at the end of verse 10. He says, Give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, these things that he's just mentioned here, he says, you shall never fall. And that word fall is in aorist tense. So if we know anything that we've talked about in Greek, aorist tense there, it means... um, something on the order of an event that happens. It's not an ongoing thing. In other words, it's, it's not translated falling. It's translated fall. So the point is then is that if you are doing these things and adding these things to your faith and your faith is growing and it is producing fruit, then you will not come to that final point of falling from the faith. You will remain. But then notice what he says in verse 11. If you do that, then he says, so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom, or as we saw earlier, it's the age-lasting kingdom, the age-abiding kingdom, which, by the way, same word is back there in 1 Peter chapter 5 where it's translated eternal glory. They could... If they were consistent, the King James translators, they could just as easily have said everlasting glory. It's eternal glory, eternal kingdom. Other translations call it and say it eternal kingdom. It's the messianic kingdom of which he speaks. And he says, concerning that, you will receive an, an, an abundant entrance. Or as the New American Standard translates it, it says you will receive a rich welcome into his kingdom. Now, back here in Matthew chapter 5, regarding the Sermon on the Mount and the teaching in these Beatitudes, the principles he's setting forth for us then are those principles that we have to bring in and, and build in our life and grow in our faith in order that we might receive that kind of an entrance into his kingdom. And one of those things that he says is is an essential requirement, is a necessity, is to hunger and thirst after righteousness, to desire it, to have it as something that's, pulling at you out of the depths of your soul, of your of the very core of your being. Why would we say that? Well, look at the figures that he's using, hungering and thirsting. When we are thirsty or when we are hungry, we feel those pangs and those urges right out of the depth of our person. It comes from deep within. 
And so this hungering and thirsting for righteousness then is something that comes deep within us. It's, an, it's a deep desire, a longing desire for righteousness. Look with me to um, some passages in the Old Testament that I want us to look at. Psalm 42 If you think about this idea of longing for God, thirsting after him, hungering after him, and if you were to go to the Old Testament and look for places where it might teach things about that, I think one of the first places we would probably think of would be the Psalms. The Psalms are where the writers had the tendency to reveal their, their deepest longings and feelings in poetry. And music. In Psalm 42, he says there, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear? before God. You know, as you you look at that scene of a deer, a heart, panting, thirsting, looking for a cool stream and it wished to quench his thirst in a drought. And so the author of the psalm, the writer here, who was evidently very familiar with such an occasion, used that as an illustration of what he was longing for, thirsting after God in that sense, something that came out of a deep desire. He says in verse 3, My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? A searching and a longing with tears, So you're speaking of something that's a deep emotion, pulling out, wanting something. Turn over to Psalm 63, just a few pages there to the right again. (coughs) One of my favorite psalms. (coughs) Excuse me. I don't know if I've got what Jerry has, but I sure got something like it. I've had it all week. In Psalm 63, verse 1, notice what he says. O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Now, I'll tell you, that's a pretty graphic illustration. The picture of a one in a Dry and thirsty land. Well, a dry and thirsty land to me is a desert. There's nothing there. And he's craving water. His throat's dry, sticky, tongue sticking to the roof of his mouth, the corners of your lips are sticking together, and he's craving water. And he's using that to illustrate the longing of his soul in the same way For God. He is thirsting for God, wanting to know Him, wanting to be near Him. What does He want to see? 
Verse 2, he says, to see thy power and thy glory. So as I have seen thee in the sanctuary or in the holy place. Look over to Psalm 143. We're not looking at every one of these that we could look at, by the way, because there are, there are many. But let's look at Psalm 143. There in verse 6. The psalmist again just says, I stretch forth my hands unto thee, my soul thirsteth, thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. And we could go on. The longing of the psalmist thirsting after God and using, using this figure of speech to describe how they were longing for him. Look, turn back to Psalm uh, 15. And I want us to return now to something I mentioned earlier about the fact that there were and are several lists of or descriptions of things in the Bible in which God describes the kind of person that he accepts, the kind of person that he has approval of. And here in Psalm 15, he gives us such in verse 1, he says, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Now, to dwell in the tabernacle was to be in the presence of God. Oftentimes in the Psalms, which we won't take time to look up all those this morning, but there are several references to the psalmist's desire to be in the courts of God. And what he's speaking of is to be in the temple courts. He wanted to be in that place where he could be the nearest to God's presence. And of course, the Jew took great joy in finding acceptance before the Lord and appearing there before him. And then he says, who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Well, the hill here, the holy hill is a euphemism for being in God's presence on, well, there's two ways you could look at it. One, the holy hill literally of Jerusalem and that hill where the tabernacle was. But also it speaks of his kingdom. He wants to be in the presence of God in his kingdom. And we find, again, many expressions where the word a hill, or as we saw last week and the week before, that the word mountain, we called it the Sermon on the Mount, uh, is really referring just to a, what we would call a hill. And this is the same expression here, that the word mountain is another euphemistic expression for a kingdom. And so the psalmist is asking that question, who can dwell in God's presence? Well, he begins to enumerate those things. In verse 2, he says, he that walks uprightly and works righteousness. And Jesus said, you have to hunger and thirst 
after righteousness. He said you have to speak the truth in your heart. You know, it's one thing to outwardly be a truth teller and have that as a principle of life that you're going to tell the truth. But it's another thing to from your heart have a desire to be a truth teller and to be a person of truth. He doesn't backbite with his tongue, verse 3, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor take up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is not contemned. That is, you don't look down on him. He honors them that fear the Lord, and he that swears to his own hurt and changeth not. That's probably, to me, one of the hardest ones there. He, doesn't, he swears to his own hurt. In other words, he's going to stand for right and truth, even if it hurts him. And then he says in verse 5, He that putteth not out his money to usury, that is to excessive interest, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He doesn't accept bribes. He that doeth these things, he says, shall never be moved. If you'll look over at just a few pages to Psalm 24. Look at verse 3 where he asks the same question. The psalmist. He says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? Well, here's the answer. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. We're going to see that as one of the blessed beatitudes. The one with a pure heart. Who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. And then if you'll turn over to Psalm 101. Now, we could really go through the entire psalm here, and I don't know if I want to, but notice he says, I will sing of the mercy and judgment unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way, that is, in a sincere, truthful, um, undefiled way. When, oh, when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside, that is, who fall away from the Lord. It shall not cleave to me or become, I shall not become derelict in my faith. A froward heart shall not depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privily slanders his neighbor, Neighbor, him will I cut off, and him that hath an high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land. They that, may, they that dwell with me, he that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. What you have here is a picture of David 
looking over his kingdom and determining how he is going to, de- uh, to conduct himself as king over his kingdom. And these are the standards that he set for himself. And he says there that he, his eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land or the trustworthy. In verse 7, he that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will early destroy all the wicked of the land. Is that nothing more than what Jesus said he will do? That he's going to remove the wicked from his kingdom? That he will purge it and cleanse it? And that righteousness and peace and holiness will prevail when he rules the earth? He'll destroy all the wicked, he says, that I may cut off all the wicked doers from the city of the Lord. For David, that was a literal thing from Jerusalem. As we look forward to what the New Testament writers say, they speak to us about that heavenly city. We looked at that in Hebrews chapter 12. We don't have an earthly city that we're looking to, Jerusalem. He says, you have a heavenly city, a heavenly Jerusalem. That is the anchor and the goal of our faith. And he's simply telling this then that these are the kinds of things, Old Testament, literal, for a real city, New Testament, figurative, for a city that is in the heavens. One we are to look to and earnestly seek after. And because of that, he says, Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness are those that will be accepted of him in that coming kingdom. The scriptures also tell us frequently in the Psalms, the Lord loves righteousness. Now, I want to say that when you think about that kind of righteousness, here's what he's talking about. He's talking about the practical things that you and I do every day. He's talking about the outworking of our faith, how we live. Do we choose to lie? Do we choose to practice deceit, to get ahead in life, to grow our business, to get along with our friends or our enemies or our neighbors? No, he says they hunger and they thirst for righteousness. They are eager for it. Just a few verses over, well, down and over in my Bible, in verse 20. He tells us there, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to tell you, The scribes and the Pharisees lived out the law to the letter. If he were speaking about keeping the law here strictly, then there wouldn't, I don't know if there could be anybody who could surpass a Pharisee. I mean, think about Paul. He was one of the strictest Pharisees there ever was. To exceed his righteousness would have been a virtual impossibility. So he's not talking about the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. 
He's talking about that kind of righteousness that proceeds from a heart that is right before God. The one that is poor in spirit. The one that is a mournful heart. The one that he says here is a meek person. And now he says one that's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So it's a righteousness that, if we could say it this way, oozes out of us because of the Holy Spirit's work within us. And without that righteousness, he says, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of God. And so we find, again, that it's one thing to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus, a so-called follower, claim to be a follower, and yet not possess these kinds of qualities. Let's look at um, Matthew chapter 3, just a page back. Notice what he says there. And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he suffered him. Well, you know what this had to do with. It had to do with the baptism of Jesus. Now, yeah, really, if you stop and think about this, John the Baptist He is out preaching and proclaiming this message of the kingdom of the heavens. And he's calling people out into the desert, as it were, a picture of separating themselves from that crooked and untoward generation of the leaders of Israel. And to be baptized, to repent of their sins. And so along comes Jesus to to John and he says, in essence, you know, want you to baptize me. And John's, you know, thinking, baptize you. You don't need baptized. What are you going to repent of? But he, he misunderstood. It was a deed, an act of righteousness that he was fulfilling in baptizing him. With that in mind, look over to Luke chapter 1 and verse 70. Luke chapter 1 and verse 70. This is a big chapter here, 80 verses. Now it says there, beginning in verse 70, it says, As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been, sent, which have been since the world began, or the age began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. Now, of course, he's speaking as one who was steeped in Old Testament thought. And he says then, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Serve him in holiness and righteousness. I'm simply pointing out that this is practical righteousness he's speaking of. 
It is the actual outworking of the daily life that we live to be lived in this kind of righteous living, holy living, that grants or receives God's approval and his acceptance. And then he says, as an end result of that beatitude, that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, he says, they shall be filled. Now, of course, very simply, the word filled, just, it's, it's used many times in Scripture. And all it means is, is to be full with food. Consequently, some translate that, they shall be satisfied. That's the way we all are. Once we sit down to a good meal and our hunger or our thirsting has been satisfied, then we walk away full. It's not satisfied until we are full. And concerning this matter of righteousness, he says, they shall be filled, satisfied. Now, I take all of these different expressions in the Beatitudes here to be the different expressions for the same thing. In other words, when he says theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or they shall be comforted, or they shall inherit the earth, or they shall be filled, or they shall obtain mercy, and they shall see God, all of these are nothing more than the same expression related to one's approval before God and acceptance into his kingdom being received by him. And so, when we think about all that, we're going to end it up this way. Just simply think. Picture a king. Or if you want to relate it to something closer to home, our president. Or if you want to get closer to home than that, our mayor. And you would like to, you have this longing, you have this desire to be in their presence. And so then you have this willingness to go out and do those things that will gain his favor to the point where he would receive you into his presence. Warren, Warren Buffett had a guy pay 35, I think it was three and a half million or $35 million the other day to eat lunch with him. I think it was three and a half million. So he didn't have to earn it. But with God, there is a matter of acceptance with him on a practical basis. And regarding his kingdom, there is a practical acceptance of these qualities of being filled, full, satisfied with him and acceptance of him. Once we do that, once we bring those things into our life, as Peter said, he said, then there's an acceptance by him and he will accept and receive us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is, in your word, revealed those things that are pertinent to our life and calling as Christians. And those things that you have given unto us 
are, according to your own word, easy to be carried. Your invitation to us is that your burden is easy and your yoke is a, a light thing to us, not hard to be carried. And I pray, Father, that as we look over these things that you've expressed to us in this this teaching that you gave to your disciples, that we would not look upon them as things that are discouraging and distressing and impossible to achieve, but by the work of your Holy Spirit, you can work these things out in our lives as long as we're just simply obedient to you. Lord, help us to do that as humble servants and with meekness and with hearts filled with gratitude for your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.